Good morning once again, Grace Gospel Church. God is good all the time. What a worship service thus far, amen? God is being praised, and we give him honor, we give him glory, and in fact, we do give him praise. I am here to introduce to you this morning our guest speaker. I'd like for you to keep Brother Paul Johnson and his wife in prayer. Paul is at home convalescing. Rather, his wife is convalescing, and Paul happens to be with his wife, where we believe he should be as the elders of our church. This morning, we have a preacher that knows how to preach the word. He is a person that we felt from an elder's perspective that we needed to have someone else in our pulpit this morning for you to hear from. But he has been vetted by us. And I'd like to introduce you this morning to Sam Walbrandt. He is a graduate of the Master's University and pastor, pastoral assistant at Cross Road or Crossway Church in Keene, New Hampshire. I met Sam this morning in person. I listened to his sermons. But this morning I met Sam and his wife and his four children. Well, actually two of the four, correct? Okay. And they're on their way to do important missions work in Croatia. And he told me this morning they'll be leaving on Wednesday of this week. But he'll tell us more, much more about that this morning when he delivers his short, short message to us this morning. Now, as I stated a moment ago, the elders have listened to two of Sam's messages and perhaps more that he delivered at his home church, and we're confident that you will appreciate hearing him minister the word of God to us this morning. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce you this morning to Sam Walbrandt, our speaker this morning. Greetings from Crossway Church in Keene, New Hampshire, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so glad for the opportunity to come. And as our brother said, we are departing for uh, mission work that God has prepared us for, that God has used our local church in Keene, New Hampshire to prepare us and equip us for, to minister the gospel in Croatia, to train pastors who can go out as church planters, church strengtheners. And it's one of the great joys and privileges as one who is endeavoring to, uh, to be sent. Many serve as senders, and that's a high calling. As ones who are endeavoring to send, we get to go to churches who have a great burden for the advancement of the gospel in foreign lands, in places where access to the gospel is not the same as it is in our place, in places where, as the book of Revelation describes a local church like this one as a lampstand, shining gospel light, places where the lampstands are dim or very much non-existent. And so it's a great blessing as, as a missionary to travel around 
and to see churches who take seriously shining gospel light to one another as they gather and worship on a Sunday morning and then out in their communities throughout the week. So I commend you, and uh, I do pray for your, for your church as I have become aware uh, of this lampstand, of this ministry and this place, um, as I've gotten to know your pastor. Prayers are with you as you walk side by side with him through this trial, uh, the difficulties of his wife's health at this time. So it is, it is my great joy uh, to be with you all here this morning. My plan this morning is to spend some time cycling through some slides to tell you about what we plan to do in Croatia, but then in, uh, in somewhat of a hurried fashion, I want to get to, as our brother already said, what, what we're all here for, and that is to hear from the word of the Lord in the book of 2 Timothy. So thank you for, for hearing our plans, that you can pray for us and with us in an informed manner. And, uh, and then we'll look forward to hearing from the Word of God from the book of 2 Timothy. So we are the Woolbrandt family, as you can see here. Uh, we're, we're planning to train pastors, plant and strengthen churches in Croatia. This is my first shot at the button. Didn't work. Let's try another button. Oh, that did it. All right, a little bit more about my family. So there's a picture of us all. Uh, my wife's name is Sarah. As we said, two of our children are here this morning. The, my oldest son in the middle there is, is uh, not with us this morning, but my next daughter, Ren, uh, to, to the right of him, is here. And then our youngest daughter, uh, Ember, I'm holding her in the picture, and then uh, Ivy is there on the left. So here's, uh, what was the button that actually worked, I wonder? We'll figure it out in a minute. Oh, I got a laser pointer. There it is. There's our kiddos, so Cooper, Wren, Ivy, and Ember from left to right there. A little bit about Croatia. Raise your hand if you have any notion of where this country of Croatia is. All right, not bad. I didn't really know when, uh, when the Lord first brought it upon our hearts. It's in this picture overlaid over a map of the, of the United States, so no, it's not smack in the middle of the Midwest, but that's to give you a little bit of perspective of the size of this country. Uh, Croatia is, in fact, uh, in Europe. You can see there the boot of Italy that juts down into the Mediterranean Sea. If you head straight east from that boot of Italy, that's called the Adriatic Sea. And Croatia has the whole coastline of the Adriatic Sea. Beautiful, beautiful country. And uh, very much the site of so much of the first missions endeavors. When, when Paul... Uh, began to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and then through the uttermost parts of the world, this Mediterranean region was, was very much the target of initial gospel advance. This uh, map here on the left of the screen shows some of the regions of Croatia. We will be living and serving in kind of the green area, continental Croatia, and over into Slavonia a little bit on that eastern uh, part of Croatia. Croatia... As you can imagine, that coastline, that's where all the tourism happens. That's where the good economy really is. As you move east, the country gets poorer and poorer. But there's much history to understand about this region of the world. The map on the right is a map of former Yugoslavia. And the, and the years that you can see written on those countries are the years that, that these countries, the six nations that comprised former Yugoslavia, uh, gained their independence, you might say, in their current form. 
okay? So these are ancient countries, but for many years they were all together in one country called Yugoslavia, a communist conglomeration of, of these states. And so as you can see, Croatia, its current form, only a, really a country in this current form since 1991, but many, many years of history before that in these Balkan territories. This area of the world is the crossroads between Western Europe and the Middle East. So if you know anything about history, this is a volatile area. I, I googled once and found a YouTube video uh, that did the years of world history overlaid over a, over a world map, and any time that there was a conflict or a war of any kind, it would demonstrate that by having an explosion. So World War I and World War II, explosions everywhere. But if you focus in on this area of the world, it's just a constant pitter-patter of bombs throughout, throughout all of world history. This is a volatile region, but by the grace of God, there is, there is a freedom, there is an access, there is a peace right now. It's a window of opportunity that we as missionaries and we as the church of Jesus Christ need to seize upon uh, to plant strong churches in this place. So, our ministry, though structured in Croatia because of the commonality of language and due to the highway system, we're really able to train men who will go out and be church planters in all of former Yugoslavia, in Bosnia, in Serbia, in Macedonia, in Slavonia. And uh, <clears throat> so we're talking about a largely unreached area of over 23 million souls when we talk about this area of the world. Our ministry plans are this. So here's a map just of Croatia. Uh, we will live and serve where that first arrow shows you, like I said, further east in a town called Daravar. Okay? Uh, there's a school that was established in Croatia. I'll tell you a lot of, more about that later, but there's graduates from that school who have gone and planted and are serving in churches, and we plan to serve in local church ministry in this town of Daravar while also traveling further east to that town, Krapina, uh, to teach classes at the seminary as well, right? So, uh, in Scripture, we know uh, that the Apostle Paul talks about the local church as the household of God, right? The family of God. He also talks about it as the pillar and buttress or the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, what does a pillar do if you think about that architectural metaphor, right? A pillar is the thing that holds up the roof. Well, this, the church, the local church, is a pillar of the truth. So it's in local churches that the the truth, God's truth, is held up for all to see. But then it also talks about the church being the foundation of the truth. And this is not in terms of the Roman Catholic confusion of where they are the origin of the truth. They can come up with the truth, but they are the foundation of the truth. The local church is the foundation of the truth in the sense that it provides stability for the truth. So it isn't watered down. God gifts local churches with elders and pastors and teachers and, and all of the ordinances of which we have already observed one this morning, baptism, the Lord's Supper, so that the gospel shines brightly in the ministry of local churches. And so that's why it's so strategic to train pastors, to plant churches, to strengthen churches, and the, and the gospel advances. Now, why go to Croatia? There's a lot of reasons. If you Google it, uh, it'll be so you can hang out on the Adriatic coast, maybe take a cruise uh, there's a major up-and-coming tourist industry in the country of Croatia. In fact, this bar graph here shows uh, the number of arrivals in Croatia in terms of millions. So from 2006, 8.2 million, and then you see this ascending bar graph 
2019, 19.6 million arrivals in the year 2019. So Croatia, in a sense, is being put on the map as a vacation destination. Uh, and that's one reason, maybe, to go to Croatia. Here's, uh, uh, Croatia is a country that, that loves their country. Uh, there's a strong nationalism there. Uh, you'll see written in those words, Hrvatska. That's actually how you say Croatia in Croatian. Uh, to the right of, of Hrvatska there, you see the Croatian national soccer team. In the most recent World Cup, Croatia, this little country, placed second in probably the most prestigious sporting event uh, in, in all the world. Uh, down on the bottom left, this is one of Croatia's national parks. And it may be difficult to see, uh, how do I do that laser? There we go. But right there on the corner is a walkway with little tiny people walking along there. I'll try to point it out on this one too, right along that corner. So beautiful waterfalls, beautiful national parks, and then, of course, the coastline as well. So it's a beautiful destination. But why go to Croatia? Keep losing track of what, there we go. Our reason for going to, to Croatia is to proclaim the gospel. Croatia is a country that is 95, at least, percent Roman Catholic. The, Reforma the Reformation barely pushed into the borders of this area of the world. Uh, these are some Roman Catholic churches, the one on the top left and the bottom right. That's a couple of angles on a uh, cathedral that is in downtown Zagreb. That's the capital of Croatia. And this cathedral, uh, the name of it is the Church of the Bodily Assumption of Mary. Okay, And if you know anything about Roman Catholic doctrine, this is one of the most recently codified doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, and that is that Mary... Because in their view, she was sinless in order to be one who could bear the Messiah in her womb. Just like Jesus ascended into heaven and Mary didn't have to suffer physical death and, and as well was assumed into heaven. So this church is meant to commemorate that doctrine that we find nowhere in scripture and, and really exalts uh, a woman, the, the mother of Jesus, to a position that is not scriptural that is anti-gospel and that she herself in scripture in her own prayer and magnification of the Lord in Mary's Magnificat says, my soul, my soul magnifies the Lord, correct? These uh, churches on the other two sides is a picture of my wife and I when we were in Croatia about four years ago. That's, uh, have you ever been to Washington, D.C. and seen the tomb of the unknown soldier and the changing of the guard ceremony? Uh, kind of big pomp and circumstance when they changed the guard of, of the one who was pacing in front of that. Well, we saw a similar thing happen in front of this Catholic church. This is right in their sort of state government buildings. And so there's religious freedom in Croatia, but there is also a state church. And the Roman Catholic church holds a lot of sway. And even on a local level, right? If you're, if you're trying to get a building permit uh, and you're, you're a Protestant church, let's say, and you're the guy who is allowed to give those building permits, but the priest over here doesn't want you to give that building permit, and he's the guy who can forgive your sins, it makes for some very difficult situations. And so we need much prayer as we seek to share the true and saving gospel with Roman Catholic people in this place. Much more about that as we continue on. Here's a few more pictures. Uh, these are pictures that I took inside that big cathedral and it shows that Roman Catholic doctrine and their understanding of the gospel, it's conveyed and it's communicated in their art, 
is conveyed and it's communicated in their traditions that have then penetrated and fused with the nationalism of being Croatian. So to be Croatian is to be Catholic, okay? And uh, I'll, I'll talk more about that later as well, but in Roman Catholic doctrine, when you are baptized as an infant, right, you're infused with justifying grace. And so say you hear the true gospel and you realize your baptism is a profession of faith in Christ for salvation. No works that you could do could ever make you holy in the sight of God. And you, and you get baptized, you're turning your back on what was a very special time for your family when you were baptized as an infant. But here's, uh, here's some pictures here. You can see the one uh, on this side here. We have the apostles, the disciples on the bottom of this picture. They're trying to reach up to their prayers to God, and they must go through this co-redemptrix, this, this co-mediator, the woman of, of Mary. And uh, then in the middle picture, we have Mary, queen of heaven, with the little baby Jesus uh, in in her lap. And so there is, a, there is a great confusion. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about our missions strategy. We want to train men. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says to Timothy, what you have heard from me, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In trust. So there's a stewardship of passing this on so that the ministry of the gospel and the strengthening of local churches can endure. I heard a Bible teacher once describe uh, a strategy that I very much espouse and embrace in this way. He said, if you offer me a thousand partially trained men who do not meet the qualifications of Titus chapter 1 or 1 Timothy chapter 3, you offer me a thousand of them, or you offer me one church planter who is trained according to the exposition of Scripture, who meets the qualifications of character of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, I'll take that one man over a thousand. Because God dictates the strategy here. Uh, in, that same, uh, in that same video of this Bible teacher who was explaining this, he talks about how he saw a documentary once uh, about the making of believe it or not, a samurai sword. And this master samurai sword maker, he said that, that his philosophy is that he'll take on one disciple and he'll train that man for years. And his philosophy is that that man must be at least a little bit better than his equal. Because if not, then that man will go and train another man a little less than him. That man will train another man a little less than him, and in a few generations, his craft is lost, and it's no longer a real sword. Now, God, he will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, but he has provided us with a strategy. We must rise to the occasion. We must seek to be churches that fully equip the saints for ministry, that raise up and train men to serve as pastors to equip the saints for ministry. And so that's very much our, our philosophy as we seek to plant churches that like this one, and like I was talking about early, will, will be lampstands, shining gospel light in Croatia and throughout former Yugoslavia. This is going to be our team. The man on the right, his name is Mishko Horvatek. He was a Croatian man. Uh, God saved him while he was serving in the Yugoslav army. 
Okay, so this is back when Yugoslavia still existed, and he saw the dire need of uh, churches and, and men to preach and proclaim the gospel in churches, and so he issued a call and said, you know, come over to Macedonia and help us, really. And these three men, uh, Chris Brackett, Todd Dick, and Walter Heaton, were the answer from that call. These are missionaries. They were sent out 23 years ago from Grace Community Church in California, where John MacArthur serves as pastor, and, and they, they went out. They started a school to train pastors. Those men have since been out planting churches. And that's me on the far left, uh, 20 years later, joining the team. And we're so privileged to be able to come and continue pressing on uh, on the foundation that God has been so gracious to, to lay with them. Our goal and our desire is that the whole work become totally indigenous. No need for, for Western missionaries anymore. But uh, we're so thankful for the partnerships that we have uh, to, to help us get to that point. Oh, I'll back it up. Hopefully this video plays, but here's a video from Mishko. And praise God for Mishko. This man on the right, uh, if there's any gospel witness in this area of the world that we're talking about, it's very much due to what God has done through this man. So you're going to kind of hear uh, a, a, a patriarch of the ministry that's being done there talk about uh, what God has accomplished and also talk about how he is excited for us, for our family to come and join the team. So, Mishko Horvatek. There we go. Always tough when you try to do a video. You guys think it'll work or no? All right, we'll skip it. But uh, Mishko, praise God, praise God for him. Here's a few more pictures. The name of the school is Teoloska Bibliska Academia. You guys speak Croatian. Theological Biblical Academy is how you would translate that. <clears throat> pictures of one of their graduation ceremonies. So that's uh, just a summary. Like I said, I don't want to spend a long time on what we plan to do in, in Croatia, really. I'm happy to have conversations and to talk about it, but I want to move into the exposition of Scripture because that's, that's the truth. That's what undergirds all of our plans. Uh, that's where we find great commonality and uh, where we can join together in, in solidarity of what you're doing at this ministry and what we'll be doing many miles away across the ocean in Croatia. So as we have prepared to leave for Croatia to plant and strengthen churches and train leaders, there is a book of the Bible, I've already referenced it a couple of times, that God has used to uh, shape and teach me. And so please take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Timothy. And I want to frame my goal and my approach this morning using a military analogy, okay? In most sermons, we'll deal with one section or a few verses, like commandos on the ground performing missions ops up close and personal with the text, the guys in the trenches, so to speak. But what I'm asking you to do with, the, with me this morning is to join the Air Force, okay? Climb aboard a, a, rec a reconnaissance aircraft, and we'll really seek to gain a macro perspective of the strategy that the Apostle Paul is giving to us so that the ministry of the gospel might continue. And now as we survey the book of 2 Timothy this morning, I also want to make you aware, I'm going to try to do this with a missions emphasis, and I'm so excited for the opportunity to share with you some of the things that God has taught me about missions ministry through this book. So let's pray as we get into the study of God's word. 
Our Father, thank you for the attention of these saints thus far. Thank you for uh, the burden that they have for the advancement of the gospel, for your truth uh, being propagated to the nations through the ministry of local churches. I pray for your grace that just that would happen even now in our midst. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for redeeming us from the pit, for taking our sins, though they were red as scarlet and making them white as snow, making us acceptable in your sight, giving us the truth of your word that we might be informed how to please you with our lives and accomplish your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin this morning by posing a very foundational question. I just prayed and said, we want to accomplish the mission of God. What is the mission of God? What is the mission of God? What is his goal? What is his reason for creating and being involved in this world that he has created? What is the mission of God? And you can tell how this is an essential question, because if we're going to be ambassadors for the king, as the Bible calls us, if we're going to be his instruments, his heralds of his message, then our mission must align precisely with his mission. And so you can easily see how crucial it is to ask that question, to have a robust answer for that question. What is the mission of God? Well, people have suggested various answers, but when you look at the whole testimony of Scripture, it is this. The mission of God is the glory of God. The mission of God is the glory of God. Romans 11.36, all things are from him, through him, and to him. He's the source, the accomplisher, and the ultimate goal and aim of all things. Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Psalm 19, even in the natural revelation, says the heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day, the things that have been made, they pour forth speech, it says in that hymn. Exodus 14, verses 17 through 18. Here we have one of the greatest displays of God's power and his redeeming work in the book of Exodus when he delivered his people. What does he say in Exodus 14, verse 17 and following? He says, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. So why did he harden Pharaoh's heart? It's because he wanted to demonstrate and display his glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God's mission is to receive the worship that he is due because of who he is and what he has done to reveal himself to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mission of God is to reconcile all things to himself and to display his glorious and magnificent character so that we, as created beings, might rightfully exalt him for who he is. God wants all creation to behold his son, Jesus, and to marvel at what he has done to save sinners. Now, we know from Scripture that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Bible's philosophy of history is this. It's that history is a kingdom. 
Now, we, we pray this in the Lord's Prayer. We say, your kingdom come. In the end, Jesus, God's Son, will deliver up the kingdom to God the Father. But on the way to doing that, he must subjugate every usurper, every rival to his authority. And that is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies, where? Under his feet. Then he will deliver up the subjugated kingdom to God the Father. So right now, as I am speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning. He is seated with his Father in glory. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us this. It tells us that after making purification for sins, that's the cross, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is reigning there. But as you know all too well, he is reigning over a world that at this point is largely made up of people who have rebelled and continued in their rebellion against the government of heaven. And he is offering them terms of pardon. And those terms are found in the gospel. And we are commissioned to go to every nation on this earth and to proclaim to every individual those terms of pardon as they are found in the gospel. That there is a substitute who died in the place of rebels. There is one who suffered the death on the cross that we deserve so that we could be forgiven. Turn from sin. Repent. Trust in Jesus for salvation. And when somebody believes the gospel, they are accepting the Lord's terms of pardon. And they lay down their arms of rebellion. It has been said, God will save a sinner, but he will not save a rebel. You must lay down your arms of rebellion so that you no longer are a, rebellion, a rebel. And where you have people who are prepared to cease their rebellion and to call upon his name to deliver them from the effects of their rebellion, and they confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and they believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, God will save them. And one by one, they are transferred, Colossians says, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. That's how we enter that kingdom. You are transferred into it by God as you receive for yourself the one who is the king. And so, what it means at this point in time is that the Lord Jesus is conquering one by one. He's building his kingdom a saved individual at a time. He adds to his church one soul at a time, one baptism at a time, one profession of faith at a time, one rebellious individual at a time laying down their arms and coming to Christ. But the day is coming when Jesus will judge the earth. The day will come when all those who have been foreordained unto eternal life have bent the knee to the king. And all who persisted in their rebellion will be crushed in a swift, righteous, glorious judgment. Until then, we live day by day 
in a time when God is showing immense patience. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 talks about this patience. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, the setting up of this kingdom. He's not slow, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patiently delivering his terms of pardon through the mouth, through the mouths of his ambassadors, the church. This is our business. This is our occupation. This is our job. Now, what I have just done is summarize the entire purpose of the world, the whole trajectory of history. I have shared with you a, a glimpse that the scripture gives us of this completed tapestry that God is weaving, a kingdom, a kingdom where his glory is fully unveiled for all to see. And as a Christian here this morning, you are a citizen of that kingdom. Your life is a thread in that tapestry that God is weaving. But there is a challenge that we face. It is easy for a thread to lose sight of the tapestry. When we as little threads fail to look long and dig deep into God's word as it shows us the tapestry, we can lose perspective. And maybe it's easy for us to see how God is glorified in times when ministry is being blessed with success. But what about times when it's hard and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere? Well, the Bible teaches us that God is glorified as we endure suffering because it produces steadfastness and greater trust and dependence upon him, James chapter 1. The Bible also tells us that even when our message is veiled, and rejected by blind sinners, God is glorified in our faithful obedience to proclaim the truth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so this perspective changes everything. This perspective that it's all about the glory of God changes everything, and it's the key to joy and to endurance in your ministry. In this letter of 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul holds himself up as a spiritual father to Timothy, and he charges him to take the ministry and keep moving forward with it for the glory of God. And that charge abides for us today. From generation to generation of the church, the baton of gospel ministry has been passed on. And now, Grace Gospel Church, it's your turn. It's, it's our time to continue in the legacy of the Apostle Paul and Timothy and the faithful witnesses that God has used down throughout church history to accomplish his plan. It's our turn. It's our responsibility. It's our stewardship to take this precious gospel, this good news that has been entrusted to us and to disseminate it for the glory of our king. It's our turn. And that is why God has given us the book of 2 Timothy. Because when you study this book, you find that God has provided us with a manual for ministry. He hasn't left us in the dark as to how to go about ministry. Because God knows that, that apart from his guidelines and without his instructions, we would certainly fail in our management of this good news. 
that has been entrusted to us. And he cares too much about his own glory and about the exaltation of his son to allow the gospel to be mismanaged. And so we must heed God's instructions in this manual for ministry that we have been so graciously provided with in 2 Timothy. If you, if you here this morning want to be a faithful minister of the gospel here in Somerset, Massachusetts, heed these words. Heed these words. So here's the main idea for our walk through 2 Timothy this morning. We're going to look at three essential ways that every minister of the gospel must align himself with God's sovereign plan for the success of his church. Okay, a little bit of a mouthful there, but we're going to look at three essential ways every minister of the gospel must align himself with God's sovereign plan for the success of his church. A few things right off the bat. First, you are a minister of the gospel, a servant of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about how we have been reconciled, and so we are now ministers of reconciliation, right? We are now servants of the gospel, servants of God's process of reconciling sinners to himself. So sometimes we use that term minister maybe to refer to a pastor, but every Christian person is a minister of the gospel. Second, the church will succeed because God is sovereign. I've already referenced it, but he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. Third, though, we are called to align ourselves with his plan for accomplishing it, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. You want to know how to align yourself with God's plan for accomplishing what he will accomplish in his sovereign power? 2 Timothy. Now, 2 Timothy is the last of the letters written by the Apostle Paul. We have 13 letters in the New Testament written by Paul. 2 Timothy is the last. And Paul wrote this letter to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, from prison in Rome. And this is Paul's more severe Roman imprisonment. He was on death row. He wasn't just chained to a Roman guard with some measure of freedom, as we can uh, read about in the book of Philippians. No, now he is in a dark, dank, subterranean dungeon, literally in chains, abandoned, lonely, and he knew that his death was imminent. This is the tone of Paul in 2 Timothy. It's written by a man who can sense that the end of his earthly walk is near. Consider what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Turn there. I want to, even though we're going to be bouncing around in 2 Timothy a bit, it's good for you to pass your eyes over this so that then this week when you read the whole book of 2 Timothy, hopefully our survey gives you something to hang uh, everything onto. But 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 shows Paul's perspective. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So when you read 2 Timothy, understand that you are reading the words of a man who understood that he would soon be dead. Paul is passing the baton of ministry to Timothy. Paul is saying, gospel ministry is a legacy. I have it. As an apostle, it was was given to me by Christ himself, Paul is saying, Now I pass it to you, Timothy, and I intend for you to pass it on to godly men who will in turn pass it on to other faithful men 
with the end result of building a church that will last and stand strong by the power of grace and for the glory of Jesus Christ. So what we have in 2 Timothy is Paul, in this immaculate detail, explaining to Timothy how to have a ministry that honors the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, one that is worthy of this great gospel. Now, how does this book do this? Well, in chapter 1, Paul gives a negative instruction pertaining to ministry. Paul says, Timothy, this is what you must not do if you want to have a successful ministry. What is it? What is it that must not be done? What does Paul caution against? Well, I think the whole of 2 Timothy chapter 1 can be boiled down to this one concept. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. So that's the first essential. Don't be ashamed of gospel suffering. And just take a quick scan of chapter 1 with me. Pass your eyes over these verses and you'll see this repeated theme. Chapter 1 and verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then Paul then begins describing his own suffering for the gospel. And he says down in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, I am not, there's that word again, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Then a little further down in chapter 1, Paul gives an example of people who were ashamed. Verse 15, he says, You were aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me. Now, why would these people, all these people in this whole region of Asia, turn away from Paul? Well, because they were ashamed of his suffering for the gospel. They didn't want to be associated with something that brought that kind of treatment. And, but this, this exhortation to not be ashamed is such a big deal to Paul that he even names names of ones who were ashamed. He calls them out in verse 15. Figilus and Hermogenes, you see their names in the scripture. They're ashamed of the gospel message and of the suffering that is involved with true gospel ministry. Then, on the flip side, concluding chapter 1, there is a positive example of one who was unashamed. You see it. At the end of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, we have this account of a man named Onesiphorus. You ever heard that Bible name, Onesiphorus? In the end of 2 Timothy chapter 1, he was visiting Paul in prison. Look at verse 16. On Asiphorus, it says, there's our word again, he was not ashamed of Paul's chains. Now, when this man, Onesiphorus, traveled to visit Paul in prison in Rome, it would be kind of like visiting a terrorist in Guantanamo Bay. Such an action actually paints a target on your own back, doesn't it? Because by aligning yourself with one who is a criminal in the eyes of the government, you risk tying yourself to his same fate. And in this manual for ministry, God says, don't be ashamed of the message, of the ministry, of the servants who are suffering for this ministry, of the suffering and persecution that will inevitably come upon you. If you are faithful to Jesus, don't be ashamed. And it can seem paradoxical 
to us. Kind of confusing. Why? We can ask. Why does God's plan involve so much suffering for his people? Why is the Apostle Paul, the first and greatest missionary who ever lived, being given prison time and a death sentence? God is sovereign. We know it's all in his control. But why does his plan involve so much suffering for his people? Well, in Croatia, as I've already indicated, when people are baptized and they express their faith in Jesus Christ, forsaking this false gospel taught in the Roman Catholic Church, there's a cost. Employment can be lost. Livelihood can be lost. Family relationships severed. In Croatia, aunts, uncles, moms, dads, and their children often live together in these kinds of family compounds in order to be able to afford housing there. And there was a, a story about a girl who heard the gospel at one of the youth conferences uh, that our team put on. And she became convinced of her sin. She knew that she needed to be baptized as a profession of faith in Christ. But to, to be baptized in a Roman Catholic culture is to turn your back on the baptism that you already received. And so the morning came. Many Croatians are, are tempted to hide the fact that they understand the gospel and want to be baptized, which is, of course, quite the opposite of, of part of the point of baptism, declaring publicly that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus. Well, the day came, and uh, my missionary friends went to pick her up from her house her aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents crossed their arms, lined the walkway, daring her to walk past and get in the car, and she did. She did. So people in that culture can be shamed when they align themselves with the true gospel. The same is true in every culture in this world that is full of rebels to the government of heaven. But this should not come as a surprise to us. Suffering that leads to glory is at the heart of the gospel message itself, is it not? Jesus suffered death on the cross to emerge from the grave victorious. So as we take up our cross and follow him, we follow in the footsteps of Christ himself. And we know the end result, and so we are unashamed of the gospel and of the suffering that it brings. Moving now to the second essential that we have in this manual for ministry. Second, train men to rightly handle the word of God to kill infectious false teaching. Train men to rightly handle the word of God to kill infectious false teaching. Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy takes us to the next step. Paul has given this negative instruction Chapter 1, he says, Timothy, don't be ashamed. If you are, it will destroy your ministry. And now he moves to the positive side. He says, here is what you must do. Chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And this verse really summarizes our plan and strategy in Croatia. The training of men who will faithfully shepherd churches, nurturing God's people according to the word of God, that whole endeavor is rightfully a work that can be described as essential. 
The training of leaders is a biblical priority in God's plan for discipleship. And in his gracious uh, work in the church, there are some men who in the plan of God are called to be pastors, to be teachers. And those men must be equipped by God's design. They are instrumental in discipling and and equipping the whole body of believers. (coughs) Now, just because the training of elders and their shepherding role in discipleship is emphasized, this doesn't diminish the importance of other gifts and services in the church. Remember, we function as a body. The pastors are not the whole body. In fact, they they couldn't function effectively in their role if the rest of the body is not fulfilling their purpose and using their gifts. So when when I talk this way, I'm not emphasizing a superiority so much as I'm just seeking to track with the biblical emphasis here. And it makes sense logically if you think about it. The teachers, the ones charged specially with the preaching of the word and the equipping of others in the, ch- in the church, they have this role. They equip others in the church to use their gifts and perform their functions in a certain way. In what way? Well, in response to the truth of the word of God. So that, so that when you, maybe who are not a pastor, use your gifts, you're doing it as worship to the Lord because it's informed by God's truth. And so God, when he is so gracious to call out certain men to do this work, all of us in the church benefit. We, we receive instruction that informs our own unique gifts and contributions and worship to God in the life of the church. And so the training of men to fulfill this role is a biblical priority. And even more exciting, it's one that we all can be involved in. The training of pastors is not just a job for other pastors. All of you, all of us, can be involved in this work. Some by directly training and discipling men. Others by upholding this essential ministry seriously in your prayers and by serving and using your gifts to support that essential ministry and by letting the word of God here renew your mind so that it's a priority in your thinking. Who knows? Maybe a future pastor of Grace Gospel Church is currently sitting under the teaching of a faithful lady serving in the children's ministry here. I heard the plea this morning for more teachers, more people to be involved in that ministry. And maybe this this woman is laying a gospel foundation, just like Timothy's mother and grandmother did for him, which is attested to in this very book. And so we train men to rightly handle the word of God. But that's not all. Chapter 2 goes on to warn us about the most lethal, the most dangerous, the most fundamentally destructive force that will undermine the ministry of the church, namely false teaching. You see, Paul is not interested in the short game. Under the inspiration of God, as he's crafting a strategy for ministry that will have a lasting legacy, that will successfully build a church that can withstand the attacks of false teaching, 
And generation after generation of the church will be kept safe and kept pure. As he's crafting that strategy, he tells Timothy, you need to entrust this ministry, these sound words, this gospel to faithful men. Chapter 2 and verse 14, and you need to remind them of these things and charge them before God. You need to thoroughly equip them to deal with false teaching in the church to stamp it out. Because unchecked false teaching, verse 16, leads to more and more ungodliness, and it spreads like gangrene, verse 17. Now, what's gangrene? This is a deadly disease for which the only cure, pre-penicillin, is amputation, right? Cut it off. You see that in verse 17? Gangrene. False teaching is described as an infectious disease. And again, Paul is so serious about this issue of false teaching and the danger that it is to the church that he names names. Verse 17, he says, Hymenaeus and Philetus, these men were assaulting the the doctrine of the resurrection of believers in the last day. False teaching is deadly. And the church in Croatia is assaulted by anti-gospel false teaching all the time. Our brothers and sisters in that place face an onslaught of attacks. The false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church undermines the true gospel in so many ways. They promote an authority outside of God's word. They make idols out of the Pope and out of tradition, trampling on the sufficiency of Scripture. They minimize the saving efficacy of Christ alone, saying that it's necessary that there be a co-redemptrix in the person of Mary. They strip glory away from God, right? Contrary to the mission of God, which is his glory. They strip glory away from God when they attribute salvation to good works, to our merits. They actually fuel a licentious living, promoting an anti-sanctification with this erroneous doctrine of penance. You commit this sin, you can do these acts to atone for it. And they ascribe the power to absolve sins to their priests, a power which rightfully belongs to only one man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. There is only one mediator. So there's this seemingly insurmountable amount of error that we as the church are faced with. And it comes in all shapes and sizes in various cultures throughout the world. I've just described the Roman Catholic false teaching. You in your own lives may have dealt with that one or with many others in many various forms. But the question becomes, and the strategy that is informed by this manual for ministry in 2 Timothy, the question becomes, how? How do you combat all this false teaching that attacks the church? The answer? By rightly handling the word of truth. Chapter 2 and verse 15 by being a worker who day in and day out studies the scripture with reverence and honor and respect for the word and for the God whose word it is. That's the only way. Rigorous, disciplined, meticulous, systematic, accurate, careful, worshipful, reverent, study, teaching, and application of God's word. Apart from that, your church would be destroyed by false teaching. Grace Gospel Church is not immune to this. 
This is a serious warning. We do well to never treat a warning that we see in the word of God as something that we are impervious to, that that could not affect us. The scary reality is that we can become cavalier in the way that we go about ministry in the church. Careless, just kind of defining our own way without carefully consulting God's word and everything. We must not do this. If we do this, we are in danger of incurring God's judgment. Have you read Revelation chapter 2 and 3 of these seven churches, these lampstands? The Lord Jesus, in all but two of them, came with a severe word of discipline and warning. It says, if you do not correct this in your assembly, your, your lampstand will be snuffed out. But there is great promises to those churches as well, to those who heed the warnings of Christ who overcome. And so we have to stay pure. And the only way to do this is through uncompromising commitment to Scripture, rightly handling the word of truth. Do not tolerate false teaching in the church. But also remember this, and I love how this chapter ends. God has the power to save even those steeped in error. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, so beautifully defines the attitude and the demeanor of the Lord's servant. Read those verses with me. 2 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Isn't that an awesome God that we serve? He can take people from being a servant of Satan, captured by him to do his will in his snare, and he can grant them repentance and turn it all around. So what's the approach in Croatia with a Catholic who was baptized as an infant, whose nationalism, whose family life, whose identity are all in some integral way associated with Roman Catholicism? You just ask them, hey, would you read the Bible with me? And as Spurgeon said, you, you let that lion that is the word of God out of the cage and you witness its power as you carefully seek to explain and read and say, this is what it means. The word of God will have its effect. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. This brings us to the third essential. Remember, we're looking at three essential ways every minister of the gospel must align himself with God's sovereign plan for the success of his church. First essential, don't be ashamed of gospel suffering. Chapter 1. Second essential, train men to rightly handle the word of God to kill infectious false teaching, chapter 2. And now the third essential is this, build a lasting gospel legacy by prioritizing the preaching of God's word, chapters 3 and 4. How do you have a legacy? How do you build a ministry that will raise up faithful men? who will in turn go out and raise up more faithful men. How do you build a legacy? 
You see, Paul's ministry becomes our ministry. And the question of chapter 3 is, how can your ministry endure? So let's recap the flow of the book so far using an orthodontic example, okay? My dad is a pediatric dentist, right? So braces, orthodontics. How many of you ever had braces? Okay, few of you. How many of you paid for your braces for your kids? That's the more painful one. Now, braces, they work both negatively and positively, right? They remove the crookedness, but they also provide the straightness, okay? So chapter one, don't be ashamed, negative instruction. Chapter two, train men, rightly handle God's word, defend the church from false teaching, positive instruction. Now, what's the last step in the orthodontic process? You've removed the crookedness, you've provided the straightness, then what? The retainer. You've got it. Now, that is the one that I utterly failed to do. I never wore that thing. They say, yeah, just, just put this thing in, you know, every day and every night for the rest of your life. Minor inconvenience. That's the last step in the orthodontic process. The retainer. Maintain. And this is our goal, as I already mentioned, in Croatia. We want to eliminate the need for Western missionaries. It could be said that in going there, I am hoping to work myself out of a job. By following God's plan and not compromising on the gospel, even if it brings suffering, and by training men to rightly handle the word of God, we're headed in the right direction to accomplish that goal. But there is a final step. It is not enough for them to just study the word and understand it. They must proclaim it. They must preach it. This is the third essential. And when you read... 2 Timothy, this is the one that will be met with massive opposition. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and listen to this list. This is how God describes the kind of people that we will be encountering in these last days until Christ returns. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Unless the Spirit of God opens their heart, People hate God's message. People are easily infuriated by the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. They hate it so much that they will refuse to hear sound teaching. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, next chapter over. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So what do we do? How, how can the gospel continue? How can the church survive in such a hostile environment as has just been described in Holy Scripture? Well, it's because 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is true. 
we can rest in the fact that all Scripture is given. It's breathed out by God, and it's profitable. That means it's, it's effective. It will have its effect. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's a promise to lay hold of. The remedy for every issue, the wisdom to navigate every difficulty is found in the pages of Scripture. But people have to hear it proclaimed. And so, Paul says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, this manual for ministry, he says, I charge you, preach the word. Be ready. In season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. These men, who we go to train in Croatia, by, by the grace of God, they, they will go out into Croatia and throughout the countries of former Yugoslavia, and they will plant and strengthen churches, and they will do it wielding the most powerful weapon available, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. They preach it. They proclaim it. They exalt the gospel of Jesus day by day, week by week. They endure suffering for that reason. But they remain unashamed of the gospel. And like 2 Timothy 4, 8 says, as they long for and love the appearing of Christ, knowing that his return will happen, preaching Christ faithfully as they wait for his return, they, like Paul, will have a crown of righteousness awarded to them. And in all of this, we continue steadfast and unashamed of the gospel as we rightly handle the word of truth, standing against the attacks of false teaching as we preach that powerful word in season and out of season, building a gospel legacy that will last from generation to generation. Christ will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in all of this, the mission of God is accomplished, and he is glorified. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the attention of my brothers and sisters. I thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark. I pray that if there is any unbeliever here this morning who has, who has not been impacted by the gospel light shining upon them, who has not yet laid down their arms of rebellion. That you would bring them to yourself this very day in response to the proclamation of your word. Thank you for this church. I pray that you would use them to advance the gospel both here and to all the world. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Our brother will come now. Thank you, Sam, for that message.